This is Genetics in Your World, a podcast by the Early Career Leadership Program of the Genetic Society of America, where we delve into the latest genetics research featuring highlighted content from GSA journals. This is your host, G.A. Lee, a postdoc at University of Washington. Today, we will be discussing a recent publication titled Microtubule-Associated Proteins and Motors Required for Ectopic Microtubule Array Formation in Saccharomyces cerevisiae, published in Genetics by Dr. Rose King and her colleagues. Dr. King is teaching biochemistry at University of Washington School of Medicine. She received her bachelor's degree in biology from Truman State University at Missouri, and then went to earn her PhD in biochemistry from University of Washington at Seattle, Washington. She is now pursuing her career in teaching as a lecturer at the same department. In this episode, Dr. King will tell us about how she and her colleagues use a novel tool to induce microtubular ray formation in the nuclei of budding yeast. They investigate several steps in formation of a bipolar array, recruitment of the gamma tubulin complex, nucleation and elongation of microtubules, and organization of microtubules. This tool, actually a chimeric protein, reveals previously unreported roles of microtubule-associated proteins. We're excited to talk with Dr. King about herself, her research, and the story behind her research. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. King. Yeah, and thank you, Jay, for having me. Awesome. So before we go into the real serious science, we want to know a little bit more about you and your scientific journey. So how did you got interested in science? I was always pretty good at school in general. I loved the process of learning lots of new things about any particular subject and then synthesizing that information to master that subject. I even loved the parts of school that not everybody likes, like the tests and the final projects, because I loved communicating my understanding of the subject to somebody else. Then as I grew up, I realized that science really was the coolest subject to learn about. This was where I learned about the natural world around me, like what types of trees were on my block or why the sun would set at different times throughout the year. Things that were cool because they were just true and had always been true and always would be true. They just were. That's awesome. Yeah, that's I think that's really like what as scientists are just like so fascinated, right? So can you explain a little bit about your scientific journey has looked like so far? To be honest, when I was growing up, I did not expect that I would go to college. I come from a socioeconomically disadvantaged background, and I was really terrified of going into debt. But fortunately, I still applied to three colleges just to see how it went. And I ended up landing a full scholarship to Truman State University in Kirksville, Missouri. And that college scholarship is what ended up changing my life. So at Truman, because of my fondness for the natural world, I pursued biology. And when I thought about my future and how to use my biology degree, it seemed to me that there were two main pathways for me, either going to medical school or going to graduate school. I knew that medical school wasn't right for me as I was pretty squeamish. And again, I was really terrified of going into debt. So I wondered if graduate school was the right choice. I tried out a couple of types of research. For my study abroad opportunity at Truman, I traveled to Belize to conduct fish biodiversity surveys on the 
Mesoamerican Reef, and that was just incredibly fun. But then I also traveled to Salt Lake City to do an internship at the Huntsman Cancer Institute, where I studied siRNA delivery and efficacy in treating gliomas in mice. I found that I really loved that. I loved the rigorous methods of biochemistry that I learned. I loved the early mornings and the late nights in the lab. And honestly, I even loved the seemingly endless troubleshooting of the immunohistochemistry protocol that I was working on that summer. Also, my mentor assigned me some fascinating primary literature. I learned about P53, which is the so-called guardian of the genome, and I learned about how the tumor microenvironment was important in cancer treatment. So I had so much fun there that I decided that research was the right path for me, and I chose to pursue a PhD in biochemistry. So then that brings us to grad school, and during my grad career, I worked in the lab of Tricia Davis here at the University of Washington in Seattle. Broadly, the Davis lab tries to answer the questions of how does the cell perfectly divide its genetic material most of the time? And conversely, how does cell division go wrong, such as what we see in cancer cells? The Davis lab has done a lot of work to characterize mitotic processes and the physical components of the mitotic spindle. For my graduate work in the lab, I focused on how microtubules nucleate from free tubulin. Specifically, I investigated the role of, of the gamma tubulin complex, which is the long accepted microtubule nucleator of the cell, and the role of other proteins that bind to tubulin and microtubules. Your journey is totally inspiring, and I can see that how you build up like as a scientist like today. That's really cool. So what model organism do you investigate? I'm really glad you asked. So the Davis lab primarily uses budding yeast as their model organism. Um, as a eukaryote, budding yeast shares just fundamental similarities with cells of higher eukaryotes, including human cells, of course. And as a well-studied microorganism, budding yeast is able to be grown, maintained, and genetically altered relatively easily compared to the more complex organisms. And budding yeast is also a particularly great choice for studying mitosis as they complete cell division in about 90 minutes. Wow, that's cool. So are there other career interests you are currently pursuing? So due to a series of events in my personal life and just in the world during grad school, my career priorities have shifted. I've decided to leave the bench to pursue a career in science teaching. My short-term goal is to teach at the undergrad level, and my long-term goal is to use teaching as a tool for community outreach. Which you're doing right now. That's <laughs> really cool. Thank you. So we appreciate you sharing your journey and about you, yourself. So let's go a little bit more into your cool paper that you published. Your recent publication in Genetics advances our understanding on, on the process of mitotic spindle formation. And most people can probably recall mitotic spindles from intrabio classes, but can you put us on the same page of some important things to know about microtubules and microtubule-associated proteins and the process of the array formation? Yeah, that's a really good place to start. In order for a cell to multiply, it must duplicate its DNA and then divide that DNA equally to two daughter cells. 
and this division is physically accomplished by the mitotic spindle, which includes many microtubules. Initially, microtubules are formed or nucleated from two distinct microtubule organizing centers. Then following nucleation, each microtubule stochastically switches between growth and shrinkage phases, a behavior that's known as dynamic instability. Eventually, microtubules are organized into an array known as the mitotic spindle. With chromosomes at the metaphase plate and the microtubule organizing centers at each end of the spindle. These microtubule specific processes of forming the mitotic spindle, including that microtubule nucleation, the microtubule growth and shrinkage, and then microtubule organization, are mediated not only by the microtubule organizing center, but also by microtubule associated proteins. Cool. You just briefly introduced what microtubule-associated proteins are. Can you tell us a little bit more about their roles? So there are motor proteins, which generally utilize the energy of ATP hydrolysis to move along the microtubule for cellular transport. Some of these motor proteins are involved in cross-linking microtubules to help organize microtubules during formation of the mitotic spindle. Additionally, some of those motor proteins help to regulate the dynamic instability of microtubules. Besides the motor proteins, there are microtubule-associated proteins, or MAPs for short, a term that encompasses all of the other proteins that bind to the microtubule. These proteins usually move along the microtubule by lateral diffusion or by facilitated transport and have a variety of functions. They can regulate the microtubule itself by affecting microtubule nucleation or the dynamic instability of microtubules. They can also regulate cellular processes involving microtubules, and they do so by facilitating the interaction between microtubules and other proteins and complexes. Can you tell us about the directionality of microtubules and the motor proteins related to that? So microtubules nucleate at those microtubule organizing centers and extend toward the DNA to attach and form that metaphase plate, right? So the end of the microtubule that is attached to the microtubule organizing center is what we call the minus end. And then that other end of the microtubule, the one that's undergoing rapid growth and shrinkage phases, is what we call the plus end. Therefore, each microtubule has this inherent structural polarity, this minus end and plus end. And then each motor protein recognizes that polarity and moves in a defined direction. They can move toward the minus end, in which case they're moving toward the end of the microtubule that's attached to the microtubule organizing center, or they can move toward the plus end, in which case they are moving toward the end of the microtubules where the DNA is attached. Great, thank you for putting us on the same page. So when you were starting this project, what was the outstanding question? I was interested in characterizing the role of individual maps during formation of the mitotic spindle. And the problem with studying the mitotic spindle is also the reason why the division of DNA during mitosis goes perfectly most of the time. The mitotic spindle is resilient. These microtubule-associated proteins have overlapping functions with some redundancies of function. So this means that usually 
repressing the action of a single microtubule-associated protein has a small effect, if any. So in terms of biology, that's great, because then singular mutations don't generally have an effect on mitosis. In terms of studying biology, that poses a problem, because it's hard to pinpoint how individual proteins affect the microtubule-specific processes in the context of the cell. So that's where this work comes in. The Davis Lab developed a novel tool in budding yeast that promotes the formation of an array of microtubules that is ectopic from the microtubule organizing centers, which in yeast, these are known as spindle pole bodies or SPBs for short. This ectopic microtubule array is much more sensitive to perturbation than the mitotic spindle. Therefore, it allowed us to investigate the roles of individual maps during microtubule array formation in the context of the cell. That's really cool. So in this publication, you utilized an assay to ectopically induce microtubule nucleation by using a chimera protein. So can you briefly explain that procedure? Yeah, so first, let me describe the tool a little bit. We call it the SBC110 chimera. It's a chimeric protein in that it contains domains of multiple different proteins in one polypeptide chain. For example, it includes a GFP for visibility by fluorescent microscopy, and it contains a GCN4 domain, and this domain promotes oligomerization of the SBC110 chimera. And then it's called the SBC110 chimera because the domain from the protein SBC110 is the real business portion of this tool. SBC110 is the protein at the SBBs that binds to the protein complex that then directly binds to the minus ends of microtubules. This protein complex is called the gamma tubulin complex. So we used the portion of SBC110 that binds to the gamma tubulin complex, but we omitted the portion of SBC110 that binds the SBBs so that the SBC110 chimera could localize elsewhere. So, okay, now let me describe the experimental setup. The first thing to understand is that the expression of this SBC110 chimera is induced by a drug called beta estradiol. So we can control when it is expressed. Second, we found that the SBC110 chimera is only able to recruit the gamma tubulin complex and form microtubule arrays when other microtubules in the cell are temporarily depolymerized using a drug called nicotazole. And then finally, we found that deletion of some microtubule associated proteins in the SBC110 chimera genetic background gave rise to sick yeast strains. So instead, we chose to deplete those particular proteins in a different way to test their effect. We depleted those proteins, which are STU2, BIM1, and BIC1, by tagging them with an oxin-inducible degron and then treating the cells with oxin. Yeah, so what events do you see in those cells? What we see, following treatment with beta-estradiol and nicotazole, we see that the SBC110 chimera can recruit the gamma tubulin complex away from the spindle pole body. Then when nicotazole is removed and microtubules are allowed to polymerize again, 
we see that the SBC110 chimera can form microtubule arrays. And like the microtubules of the mitotic spindle, these microtubules are mostly parallel or anti-parallel to one another. And most, if not all of these microtubules are capped at their minus end by that gamma tubulin complex. Compared to the mitotic spindle, however, these microtubule arrays associated with the SBC110 chimera are smaller and less well organized. Now we know that this ectopic microtubule array formation assay works beautifully. Then what question did you first wanted to ask? Well, we knew from our control experiments that in the absence of microtubules, the SBC110 chimera could, but did not always, recruit the gamma tubulin complex. As the recruitment and organization of that gamma tubulin complex is required for microtubule formation in cells, we first asked if any of our candidate maps or motors might affect the ability of the SBC110 chimera to recruit the gamma tubulin complex. But for this experiment, we found that none of those maps or motors did affect that process. That's really cool. So the SBC10 chimera can recruit the nucleation complex without help of either the microtubule-associated proteins or maps or the motor proteins. Now, you built a system to reconstruct the microtubule assembly independent from the spindle. That's really cool. So taking advantage of this system, finally you can unravel the function of maps. So please guide us to each of your discoveries. First, we were interested in how each of our candidate maps or motor proteins affected the rate that microtubule arrays appear at the SBC110 chimera. Here is where we started to see some of the differences between our control and experimental groups. The largest effects we observed were when STU2 or BIM1 were depleted using that oxindegron system. Here we found that no microtubules formed either at the SBC110 chimera or at the SBB. And that means that microtubule nucleation never occurs. So this was a huge effect for STU2 and BIM1. When KIP3 was deleted, we found that the appearance of microtubule arrays is delayed. And we interpret this as a delay in microtubule nucleation. This role in microtubule nucleation in the nuclei of budding yeast was previously unreported for STU2 and BIM1 and KIP3. Though homologous proteins and other organisms have been previously implicated in microtubule nucleation, and STU2 was previously reported to promote microtubule nucleation in the cytoplasm of budding yeast. Okay, so you also investigated an interesting aspect of STU2, right? The thing about STU2 is that it's part of a well-studied family of microtubule polymerases. Even I have previously studied this family. In 2020, the Davis Lab published a report where I studied the microtubule nucleation and polymerization capabilities of different mutations of a protein called XMAP215. And XMAP215 is the Xenopus lavis homolog of STU2. I found that the ability of these XMAP215 mutants to nucleate new microtubules correlated with their ability to polymerize existing microtubules. And I wondered if this might be true for STU2. 
That is, I wondered how STU2 mutants with varying polymerase abilities, as measured in purified protein solutions, might affect microtubule nucleation, or whether microtubule formation would be completely inhibited, as it was when STU2 was depleted. So I investigated this, and I found that STU2 mutants that are deficient in their ability to polymerize existing microtubules are also deficient in their ability to promote microtubule nucleation at the SVC110 chimera. Similarly, STU2 mutants that do not polymerize existing microtubules at all in purified protein solutions are also not sufficient to promote microtubule nucleation at the SVC110 chimera. Okay. So you measured how MAPS and other motor proteins promote the rate of microtubular reformation too, right? So were there any other noticeable effects on microtubular reformation? I didn't specifically mention any of my results regarding VIC-1 yet. And that's because deleting VIC-1 did not have an effect on gamma tubulin recruitment or the rate of microtubular array formation at the SVC110 chimera or at the spinal pole body. However, in looking at the fluorescent images of the microtubular rays that were at the SVC110 chimera when, when VIC1 was deleted, I did see a difference from the control cells. Generally, in control cells, the microtubular rays at this SVC110 chimera have two distinct distal ends where the gamma tubulin complexes are clustering together. That was generally not the case in those cells where VIC1 was deleted. In those cells, I saw that the gamma tubulin complexes did not cluster as much. There were more clusters, and each individual cluster, on average, was fainter than in control cells. It turned out that there was approximately the same amount of gamma tubulin complexes in those microtubule arrays as in the control cells, but the distribution of those complexes was different. There was less minus end clustering in the cells with VIC1 deleted. So VIC1 is a part of this minus end directed CAR3 VIC1 motor complex, which in turn is a member of the kinesin-14 family and those kinesin-14 proteins in other organisms have been implicated in minus end clustering, but this was the first report of this role for VIC-1. That's really cool that you found the proteins um, that are important for also not only the array formation, but also the clustering. So what discoveries do you foresee being made with your ectopic microtubule array formation assay regarding your own research um, are there any scientific questions you're excited to answer? Well, I would say that anyone that wants to study microtubular array formation in the context of a living cell could use this SBC110 chimera. For instance, I know that the Davis lab is still interested in microtubular array formation, and particularly in another factor that regulates this process. And that factor is post-translational modifications, like phosphorylation, of proteins such as SVC110. So then, by modifying the SVC110 chimera itself, the Davis Lab has already started to explore those types of questions. Cool. Are there any limitations of your system that researchers will have to keep in mind when using your system for their research? So, 
there's a philosophical limitation to these experiments. Mm -hmm. As I described earlier, the microtubular rays at the SVC-110 chimera share some similarities with the mitotic spindle, but of course, this is not the mitotic spindle. So while we can learn about general aspects of protein function in the nucleus of living budding yeast, we cannot use these results to definitively say what those proteins are doing during mitosis. The SVC110 chimera can help identify proteins and mutations of interest, which can then be further investigated in the context of the mitotic spindle. And then another limitation of these experiments is more of a physical experimental one. As I mentioned, microtubular ray formation at the SVC110 chimera requires that microtubules be temporarily depolymerized with nicotazole. And this also arrests the cell cycle. So for those that would like to study microtubule array formation without ever arresting the cells, the SVC110 chimera is not the tool for them. Okay, that's very good to know. So finally, outside of this project, are there other scientific questions that Davis Lab is currently investigating? Yeah, I'm really glad you asked. So as I said, I've decided to leave the bench, but the Davis Lab is still going strong in its exploration of the components of the mitotic spindle. Besides their studies on the spindle pole bodies at each distal end of the spindle, they're also interested in the protein complexes in the middle of the spindle, the ones that attach the DNA to the microtubule. These protein complexes are called kinetochores. So therefore, the Davis Lab is investigating both where the microtubules originate in the cell and where microtubules attach during mitosis. That's really cool. Thank you for coming onto the show to share your story and research with us today. And as a cell biologist and geneticist, it was super exciting to hear about your contribution to the fundamental question of understanding the process of microtubule polymerization especially knowing the new roles of MAPS and motor proteins. I'm sure the scientific community will really benefit from being able to use this inducible system to study a wide variety of scientific questions. So thank you again, and good luck with your future scientific endeavors. Yeah, again, thank you, Jay, and thank you to Genetics for having me on this podcast. The Genetics in Your World podcast is produced by the multimedia team of the Early Career Leadership Program of the Genetics Society of America. We invite you to visit the Society's website, genetics-gsa.org, for more information on how you can get involved with the genetics scientific community. Thank you for spending time with us, and we hope to meet you again in our next episode. <laughs>